what were you doing last Tuesday night between the hours of 4 p.m. and 11 p.m.? What did you eat that night? Who did you talk to or interact with? What time did you get home? And is there anyone that can corroborate your story? How hard was it for you to recollect those memories of what you did last Tuesday? Do you remember all the people that you you interacted with? Do you remember when you went to bed? What the heck did you eat that night? All those things are really hard to remember. Keep this in mind when you're thinking about today's episode because these are some of the questions that you might be asked when told to give an alibi. If those questions seemed unfair or a bit confusing or hard hard to answer, they are. Um, And that's the kind of question that you might be asked whenever you're giving an alibi. It may not be last Tuesday night. It actually might be three weeks ago or maybe months ago. And you have to recall what you were doing at a specific time to absolve yourself of a a crime that you're being accused of. This is a really cool episode. I think you're going to have a really good time learning about the psychology of alibis. We have Dr. Kareva Matuku on. He is awesome. He, He was so fun to talk to. Uh, we talk about eyewitnesses, lineups, and you know the differences in recall when it comes to alibis and how problematic they are, the obstacles that are associated with them, and a ton more. Uh, and if you stay tuned to near the end of the episode, Kareva is going to tell you what you need to do whenever you're being asked to give an alibi. So stay tuned for that and enjoy the episode. Cheers. Welcome back to another episode of Brain Buzz Podcast. I'm your host, Drake. And today we have a special episode on legal psychology, which is a new topic that we haven't really covered. And we have the man, the doctor, new doctor, Dr. Kareva Matuku. Thank you for joining us, Kareva. I'm excited to have you on. Hi, Drake. Thanks for having me. And um, I'm really excited to talk to you today. Yeah, yeah. So so first of all, congratulations. Uh, you just- Thank you past your dissertation uh, with flying colors, I'm sure, um, from the Florida International University. So congratulations. Thank you. Thank you so much. Call me doctor. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm just going to refer to you as Dr. Kareva throughout. If I'm <laughs> throughout please, no. <laughs> has, it, has it worn off yet? I mean, what's the time period within, you know, getting your doctorate to being tired of telling people to call you doctor? Um, I mean, maybe a day after I defended, um, I was over it. Yeah, <laughs> uh, because everyone was just like doctor, and I was like, okay, okay, Re- yeah. realistically. And, yeah, you, you, you take know, so much time to get there, and then you know, you take so much time to get there, it. and then yeah, as soon as you get it, it's not that big of a deal. <laughs> it's like when you've been staring at a cookie in the cookie jar for so long, right? It's like, is it really Absolutely. better? Are you thinking about it afterwards? <laughs> Probably not. Um, so, yeah. so Kreva, I'm gonna lead with, um, and I, it's cheeky. I know I talked to you before, and you said it was okay. So I'm gonna lead with you. You wrote a chapter on. Um, the psychology of alibis, and I thought the, yeah. the intro actually reads kind of like a like a true crime gritty novel versus a <laughs> <laughs> more academic handbook. So, so I'm going to lead with that to kind of get us into the, today's topic. Okay? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. On the night of March second, two thousand, after a night of drinking with friends, Mary Beth Walter was shot and seriously wounded in Palm Beach County by a man in a tin car who had pulled up beside her and her husband at a stoplight. Almost a year later, on the basis of an apparent anonymous tip, pre-med student Vishnu Prasad was placed in a lineup identified by Walter's husband 
Robert Didziak, and sub- subsequently charged with aggravated battery. To call the state's case against Persaud weak would be a serious understatement. No physical evidence linked Persaud to the crime. No weapon was recovered, and his vehicle did not match the description given by the witnesses. The identification was also highly suspect. The perpetrator was described as Hispanic. Persaud was Indian. According to police, the witnesses, which included friends of Walter's, were extremely drunk the night of the crime. The private investigator showed Didziak the lineup had been promised $10,000 for a conviction and had told Didziak beforehand that the shooter was in the lineup. The background of Prasad's lineup picture was shaded differently than those of the fillers, many of whom appeared to be of completely different nationality than Prasad himself. Despite being 23, the lineup photo of Prasad depicted him at age 17, possibly because more recent photos of him, which depicted Prasad with long hair, did not match the witness's description of a short-haired perpetrator. Multiple witnesses failed to identify Prasad from the lineup, at least one of them failed to identify Prasad in court, and perhaps most importantly, Three alibi witnesses provided unchallenged, unequivocal testimony in court that Prasad had been with them some 30 miles away at the time of the crime. And they were sure of the date because they were studying for an upcoming scheduled exam in their organic chemistry class. One can only imagine Prasad's shock then when he was found guilty by a jury. Okay, so so let's go through this. Like this happens all the time, right? Like this is this is not unheard of. It's it's really not. Um, I think what's really interesting when you um, kind of get into looking what happens behind the scenes in the criminal justice system is kind of where a lot of my interest in psychology came from is when you realize some things that don't make sense keep happening, right? So you have these people who are convinced or who believe, you know, this guy's guilty, but you have three alibi witnesses who have this, you know, very strong um, testimony or, you know, statements of, this person was not there. We were studying for an exam. And so how does that happen? What is going on there? Like, why are people not believing this story, right? And people get wrongfully accused and wrongfully convicted over this. And that's kind of where a lot of our research has come from, just real world cases where this happens and then we ask ourselves, what happened? So you kind of go in after the fact and try to look at what factors contributed to this and just try to now study it in an isolated, you know, um, scientific methodical way to try to stop it from happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, the numbers themselves are probably uh, almost impossible to get. Right. But like, right. what do you think the, you know, the genuine prevalence of false convictions are within the legal system? Do you think it's actually worse than we, we anticipate? Well, what's interesting is, um, you know, for the m- most part, our criminal, at least in the U.S., the criminal justice system in the U.S., usually works on plea bargains, right? So people, a lot more people plea out before they even get to a trial. So, you know, there are a lot of factors that go into that decision, right? Because, you know, it's a system that's overly burdened. There are so many people coming in and coming through the system that they don't have the capacity to take everyone to trial. So a lot of people plead out. And then of the ones who, you know, whether or not they're guilty or innocent, right, people will take the plea because the alternative is leaving it to a jury. You don't know how that's going to go. It'll take a lot of time, a lot of resources and all that stuff. So all those things kind of go into that. Um, but to give you something that I do, or like maybe a number, um, mm. you know, one of the um, leading sort of statistics that we hear is that, you know, they've looked at statistics and numbers from um, overturned convictions, right? So when you look at you know, the Adventist um, DNA evidence. And when that kind of came into 
into play, like late 80s, early 90s, you basically had a situation where a lot of convictions were now being overturned because of DNA evidence. And when you look at those overturned cases, at least 25% of them involved these um, alibis that were not believed, right? And so just one out of four of those, it definitely plays a part. Is it the only factor? Definitely not. But it is something that has contributed to um, 25% of those overturned convictions. Wow. That's scary to hear. Um, <laughs> and that's just the ones that are, you know, that are overturned, right? You still don't Those know. are the ones that are overturned. And then there's some that just don't, you know, mm -hmm. maybe because, you know, maybe if you take a plea deal, you can't, you know, appeal that and you can't have that overturned. And so, and given that the majority of people do plea, uh, take a plea bargain, then that just means that it's probably a bigger problem than we think it is. Right. And, and taking plea bargains, I imagine the, the main reason to do so is because you're just scared of the resources that it would require. Also, the, the possible consequences, even if you're innocent, because you don't want to, you're not able right. to prove yourself innocent. Right. And, you know, I think a lot of the, the tactics, you know, you know, you plead down to some to a lesser charge, usually, right? So, you know, if we're going to go to trial, we're going to go for this hyped up charge, right? But then if you take the plea deal, you only serve three years instead of potentially serving eight. You know, so when you look at that, you know, how that those probabilities and, you know, you do the math on that, it's definitely a better decision for a lot of people to just see that. Right. So so the main topic of your research and what we're probably going to be talking about today then is, you know, alibis. <laughs> alibis. And I think we'll, we'll also get into a little bit of lineup, like talking about lineups as well, if that's OK. Yeah, sure. Uh, that is sort of um within my wheelhouse yeah <laughs> but alibis you are the king so you are the doctor <laughs> of alibis here at kareva so so what uh, just to kind of talk about alibis in general for people that aren't you know i'm not very familiar with the court system or the judicial system and, and yeah. you know there will be differences within uh where people are listening from um but uh do all crimes require alibis or lineups to be like submitted like for now do you have to always have an alibi for every crime like even if it's something where you're caught red-handed <laughs> <laughs> well i mean that's a, that's a good question so i mean maybe we can look at what we what we mean when we talk about alibis right so yeah. when we're talking about alibis we're talking about this um account about where someone was and what they were doing at the time that a crime was being committed right so we know that there's a crime that's, that's happened, right? And the crime has a location, right? This crime happened in this place. And so the alibi would be, where were you at that time that this crime was happening? And so ideally the point of an alibi is to, if you're innocent or you're trying to get away with something, is to prove that you were not anywhere near there committing the crime. Because once you say, I was committing the crime, that's now a confession, not exactly an alibi, right? Um, right. So. An alibi is basically saying I was somewhere else, right? And I was not taking part in the crime. So I think that's kind of um, how to think of those. Now, does every crime have to have an alibi? A lot of people usually do. And I think when alibis are delivered um, or produced or generated, people aren't exactly thinking, I'm about to give my alibi, right? Because it's just mm -hmm. a simple question, right? So where were you, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And most people, it's seems very conversational sometimes, and you don't realize that you're actually giving an alibi in the moment. And there's so many cases where that happens, and then later on, the people don't take it seriously, or they don't try to think hard enough, and then later on realize, wait, I've been you know, pushed along further into this investigation. Now I really have to give an actual story. But you already gave your initial statement, which was an alibi. You know? And so it's hard. You know, No one's announcing to you that, hey, you're about to give an alibi. Be ready. 
but um, you know, you kind of inadvertently do. Right. And so this sounds like, uh, and you know, I've heard the sentiment of just don't ever say anything to, to a police <laughs> officer. Right. And I, and I, I do watch, I'll admit, I do watch a lot of true crime. So, uh, is that what's going on, right? Whenever you're kind of around like a scene of a crime, perhaps, and they're saying, you know, where were you? That's when that interrogation is beginning. And that's when it can kind of come back to bite you if you say something incorrectly, perhaps. So typically it can happen in a lot of different ways, right? So yeah, you know, you could be just a tent, not an actual suspect. So they could just be asking you because you happen to be in the area. So that's probably something that won't be recorded unless there's some other evidence that might point towards, you know, you being involved in some way or you fit a certain description, right? right. And that's usually what happens where they're witnesses to a crime. They maybe have um, a description of what the perpetrator looked like. And so, you know, you happen to fit that description. You're wearing the same red jacket that the perpetrator was wearing. So the question is, where were you and, you know, what were you doing? But that's usually, you know, something that can happen just after the crime has taken place. The alibis that I'm mostly interested in are the ones where so much time has passed, right? There's this passage of time. And then, you know, for whatever reason, you know, the investigation has led to you. And then you're being asked where you were and what you were doing three weeks ago, a month ago, upward to, you know, even over a year ago, right? And you have to remember what it is you were doing on that random time that you're not really thinking about, assuming you're innocent, right? (laughs) Because if you're guilty, you know exactly what you're doing. (laughs) So, yeah. And that's kind of where it gets really tricky because, um, and that's kind of where the psychology really comes in and all the memory processes that I'm sure we're going to talk about today yeah. yeah yeah absolutely i mean that uh to me is a scary thought to be someone you know even someone coming up to ask me what i did two nights ago um <laughs> you know it can be it can be very difficult to recall those mundane moments right and and then that's kind of what you're asking of innocent people to do is to say you right. know what were you doing on this specific date uh and and you know how you respond to that usually you'd be like oh i probably was just at home but then if you right. If you weren't, you know, at home five days ago, you actually went grocery shopping and you admit that, then it starts to look a little bit worse and it's not as strong, right? So so what makes a good alibi, and this is probably going to make up what we're going to talk a lot about, but what makes a good alibi versus a bad alibi? I mean, I think we're still trying to figure that out, right? Um, You know, there's hypothetical, you know, theoretical ways in which we can think about it and say, well, this is what a good, great alibi, a believable alibi should be because the extent to which an alibi is good, you know, has to be sort of evaluated against how is it perceived to, you know, evaluators. So you, this could be a jury, this could be a prosecutor or a judge. How do they perceive that alibi? Now, in general, there's some work that's been done in this area where they isolate just two sort of big things that um, influence the believability of an alibi. So the first thing is physical evidence. Do you have evidence to back it up? And the second thing is the people, right? People evidence that we call it. So who are the people corroborating your story? And it's interesting because, you know, physical evidence is usually hard to get, you know, and you can think mm-hmm. of physical evidence as maybe being a receipt, right? So you do have a receipt showing that you went to the movies, right? If you were mm-hmm. said you were at the movies, were you really at the movies? Show me the receipt. But is it a cash receipt, right? And mm-hmm. does it have your name on it? If it doesn't have your name on it, then I'm not sure if it was really you or did you just pick that off the street, 
right? So there are all these different dimensions um, that you can think of that physical evidence as some being stronger, right? So is there CCTV footage of you being in a specific location and it was timestamped? That's going to be very strong um, alibi evidence, physical evidence, versus, you know, you recorded, you just have like a photo that doesn't have a timestamp and you're like, well, I was there. Well, we don't know if you were there today or if you were there a different day, right? There's no yeah. way to tell. And with uh, person evidence, I think the big thing there is the type of people giving you, you know, your um, corroboration, I guess. So you could have, you know, the people who you're usually with, which is, you know, friends and family, your partner. Those people tend not to be believed for obvious reasons, right? Because they have a motivation to keep you out of prison. Yeah. And so um, the the system kind of, um, recognizes that almost and says, well, that alibi isn't, or that corroboration, that evidence isn't so strong because these people have an incentive. They have this motivation to keep you out of prison. But then if you had, you know, your professor, if you're in school, right, they, they know you, but they don't know you that closely to willing to risk their reputation, you know, mm -hmm. to keep you out of prison. So, you know, those are some of the things I think that you can um, factor into when you're thinking about what makes a strong alibi. Do you have physical evidence and who's corroborating your story? Right. Uh, that makes sense because, uh, you know, every time I think of alibis, I think of, oh, you could, you know, the majority of the time, if I were to be at my family home, which a lot of people, you know, spend <laughs> their nights just at family homes, right? Absolutely. You're not going to have you're not going to have other people to say, oh, yeah, I was I was at home studying the whole night. Right. Like and that's I could see why that wouldn't be as strong when it comes to physical evidence. Uh, Kareva, I'm kind of curious, has that evolved a lot with technology? Because you said you mentioned CCTVs, um, which makes sense. You know, if you're caught on camera somewhere, they can pull that up and get that's great. But what about like, you know, GPS on the phones or, you know, you know, text messages or whatever that are coming out from your phone and, and, and things like that? So yeah, that's a great question. I think that there has been a lot of progress, right? So the classic ways in which we think about physical evidence is something very tangible that you have in your hand to say, you know, I'm showing you this that's right in my hand because I'm innocent, right? But there are other ways in which you can have, you know, physical evidence nowadays. So yes, your GPS coordinates, you know, your phone tracks uh, a lot of the places that you go to. However, what it tracks is your phone not the person. So there's always, you know, the, the, the alternative to this is, well, someone else could have had your phone and could have done that. Someone else could have set it up so your computer would turn on and you could have some program, you know, go through a series of tasks and things like that. So, you know, what you're essentially trying to do is solve this, you know, space-time problem, right? So you need mm -hmm. to prove that you're in a certain location at a certain time, but that it also has to be you, right? Yeah. And so all that combination of factors just makes it really hard to come up with very convincing um, alibis. And sometimes it, you know, it works when you know they have cell tower information and things like that. So sometimes people will go, okay, that's fine, it's good enough. Um, but I think something that's important to maybe point out is that alibis are never perceived or evaluated in the absence of evidence, right? So there's usually something else that, you know, uh, a judge or a prosecutor is also looking at because they said if it's a witness statement, if a witness says they saw someone who looks like you, you know, the job of this evaluator is to look at what that witness said versus, you know, this new story about your, you know, your alibi, I was at this place and, you know, here's my GPS tracking. But this person's really said they saw you though, right? So I need to be able to reconcile that if I'm an evaluator. 
And that's where a lot of problems come in. Yeah. It's going to be a stupid question, Greva. So I apologize. Um, You know, there's certain people that just look like other people, you know, like, oh, you look, you have a familiar face, you know, or, you know, you look like a lot of other people, right? You have a very plain features. Do those people have, you know, versus, you know, someone that might have green hair or, you know, like some very eccentric features. Are those people kind of more burdened by these eyewitness testimonies? So I don't know if there's necessarily been a lot of work on that front specifically, but what I do, you know, what's jumped out and something we've looked at is how, um, and this is something that a lot of legal psychologists have looked at, is, you know, what we call this cross-race effect, where you have, you know, a lot of people have this difficulty in identifying people from another race. So, you know, and it, it ties into what you're saying, because this idea of someone looking plain and looking like someone else is something that's common for an other race, so some, a race that's different from your own. So that is what typically can happen is how do you know that, you know, you saw a black man, right, um, committing this crime. How do you know that this is the black man specifically and not a different black man who you think looks like, you know, the person you just saw? And that's really tricky, right? Um, And um, there's no way to test that in a court to say, you know, is this the cross-race effect happening or did you Mm -hmm. not really see that person? But... Um, typically, you know, you find those kinds of um, situations where, um, you know, that kind of um, effect can happen. But I think what's also interesting to think about um, with, you know, the corroboration of someone, someone saying that they saw you take, uh, you know, committing this crime or, you know, whatever, if it's person evidence and stuff, there's an element of familiarity that kind of plays into it too. Like, how familiar are you with this person? So, for instance, we, you and I just met, I mean, I hope this is the first time we're seeing each other. You know, I think I, even though I'm familiar with what you look like right now, I don't know if, you know, I saw you again under poor lighting conditions and I can say, well, he was definitely there. Drake was definitely there. I saw him because I'm not very familiar with how you look. So my testimony or my, you know, evidence is perceived with a lot more skepticism because I don't know what you look like. Versus a situation where, you know, you know someone really well, you see them all the time. If you're, you know, a professor, you you teach a class, you see these students all the time, you know what they look like. So when you see them somewhere else, you know, okay, this is the person that um, that's here and they're not committing a crime right now. So I think there's that familiarity thing that kind of plays into that too. But, you know, the sad news is, you know, the people who are familiar with you are also your friends and your family and people who are less likely to be believed. So it's just a very tricky situation when it comes to just these kinds of identifications. How do you know it was really that person, you know? And Mm -hmm. that's what we have to contend with. Right. Yeah, it's a fine line, right, of this familiarity being like, given more precedence or giving more value in the in, in the court. But also, yeah. if you're too close, then, then, you know, then, then we don't it, actually trust you. Then we actually don't. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so there is a fine line, right? And you, you, you use uh, like a professor as a, or maybe like a boss or some sort of coworker. Would, those are probably like, are those the best eyewitnesses? Because they're kind of removed from it, but they're familiar with you, you know? Right. So those would be the best sort of uh, familiar, unmotivated others is what we call them. Because they're familiar with you. They can definitely pick you out of the lineup. But, you know, they also don't have, you know, a vested stake in what happens to you or they shouldn't, mm-hmm. ideally. Yeah. So, yeah. 
So those are the yeah, those are the ones that are familiar with you, but don't have that kind of un- that motivation to keep you, to keep <laughs> out, you of prison, right? out of prison. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Cool. So I mean, that's that's really interesting. I also like that you bring up like uh, I've heard of it as well as like the outgroup theory and things like that, where it's you right. know you're unfamiliar with a certain race because you're not exposed to them as much, and then you right. see them as more similar because of yeah. you're not used to the stimuli or something like that. Uh, something something along those lines. Something right? along those lines. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and and I think that's that's really interesting too that. Um, psychology really hasn't been given as much credit within this judicial system. And it's, I think it's slowly changing, but you might have a better opinion on, you know, how much does these psychology studies on things like that, you know, uh, you're not being able to track stimuli that's outside of your, your race. um, How does that play a role in the judicial system now versus previously? Has, has, have you seen a big increase in using psychology as a source of information in science? Um, definitely there's been a lot of growth, um, in, you know, the incorporation of, um, psychological science within, um, the criminal justice field. I think that, you know, back in the day, you know, the seventies and the eighties, it was really hard to, um, prove that, Hey, listen, we've been looking at this in the lab and this is what we've seen. And here we are with these new insights that we want you to incorporate to make the system better. You know, it was harder to do, but when, you know, the incidents in which, you know, there's a miscarriage of justice and, you know, overturned convictions, when those, you know, kind of increased, you know, because of DNA evidence and all that stuff, that's when there was this call for, okay, we need to do better. And then that's really where science came in and said, okay, well, we're here and we're ready. We're ready <laughs> to tell you um, how we could be improving things. And, you know, for it's actually kind of interesting because in a lot of ways, um, a lot of there's a lot of partnerships happening with you know it's not like we're just studying it in our isolation and then going up to you know people in the criminal justice system and going hey we just found this stuff that you might think is interesting right so we're working together um and figuring out what questions to ask and then getting to sort of this partnership element kind of comes in and i think that is moving things forward now there's very there's a lot of variations depending on what jurisdiction you're in some jurisdictions are more open to change and, you know, receiving this new science and some are less so. And so that is, that's the, the, the challenge. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so, so thinking about like psychology research that would be impactful in the courtroom, you know, we're, as you said, we're going to talk about it. Uh, it's, and it's really important with alibis is, is, you know, work on memory. Um, yeah. We, we can't disregard the fact that we're not computers, right? Like our, our brains work in a specific way. Uh, right. You know, you, you can't list off what you had for lunch and breakfast on, you know, on July 5th for me, because that's just not possible, right? So, so how has that kind of been introduced? And let's talk a little bit about memory, because this is a huge part of the alibis that you're talking about. It is. Um, okay, so the thing is, you're right, we're not computers. We're also not video recorders. So we don't just record everything that we see and it stays in that, you know, state in your head and you can go back to it, play it back, rewind, fast mm-hmm. forward, you know, contrary to what some older textbooks used to write, right? Because that used to be that video recording sort of analogy was always common. But we know that memory is this really um, weird thing, which is very, you know, adaptive and isn't perfect, but it's also reconstructive. So a lot of the times when you're remembering something, you know, you're incorporating 
some bits and pieces that you did encode and some other pieces of knowledge that either you received after the fact or, you know, something to do about with your current environment and things like that into what that memory is. So it's not never a perfect record, right? And I think slowly, you know, you have these um, ways in which the criminal justice system is accepting that. So memory plays a big role, obviously, in alibis because, you know, innocent people have to remember where they were. But you also have it being um, front and center when it comes to, you know, face uh, like identifications, like eyewitness identifications and remembering someone's face, right? How well do we do that? How, you know, are people able to remember that this is the person I saw, even though when I'm seeing them right now, they're wearing different clothes, they've cut their hair. Am I able to see that this is the exact same person? And there's a lot going on there, right? Um, that we're definitely going to talk about in terms of eyewitnesses, but it also in a way that's maybe not discussed enough is also in how witnesses, people who see crime, describe them, right? Because you know when we we talked about the 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 opening for the chapter that you just read, you know there's the description of the suspect as being Hispanic and then someone being right. Indian, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So someone could say, well, did they really mean Hispanic or were they trying to say Indian? You know, they could have just seen it a certain way. Who knows, right? So yeah. this person looks sort of right. So let's just throw him in there and let's see what happens, which is sometimes how investigations occur, which is really sad, but it can happen. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the credibility of the eyewitness, if they don't take it seriously and consider it, then <laughs> then you can pick pretty much anybody if you're just assuming that they might be, you know, reaching right. to a different race or a different, uh, you know, whatever they're, they're describing the person to look at. <laughs> like, yeah. 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 But I think, you know, coming to alibis specifically, when you think about memory, the, the story of, you know, how someone comes up with the alibi, if they're innocent, is an autobiographical memory problem, right? So this is, you know, this memory that involves these chapters and these events in your life and other information about yourself, right? All of right. that combined, you have to incorporate all of that to solve this problem of where was I and what was I doing? And it's really hard to do. And something that you brought up earlier was that, you know, two days ago, you were just doing random things that no one, you know, there was no reason for you to remember that, right? There was no reason for you to think that this moment is going to be special, because in three months, someone is going to ask me if I committed a crime at this time. So let me pay attention to everything that's happening so that I can report that later. People don't do that. So that makes the task really hard, because there's no reason for us to basically encode um, the things around us constantly so that we have an alibi good to go, mm -hmm. right? And because of that, a lot of people are usually mistaken when they have to report the alibi. So, you know, instead of saying, you know, if they were at work, they were working at the office that day, they'll be like, well, you know, usually on Tuesdays, I take the afternoon off and I go to the park and I usually hang out with my friend and, you know, we have a little picnic at the park. And so that might be, you know, the story that they give, but they forget that that was actually the day they didn't do that and they were at the office working. So what is dangerous is when you give an alibi, it's not just taken at face value. There's an investigation that happens, right? They look into the story to, you know, see if it holds up. And when, for whatever reason, they go to the friends that you were supposed to be with at the park and they ask them, hey, were you at the park with so-and-so on this day? And they're like, well, no, we didn't do that on that day. So immediately, right, there's this, you know, the, there's all this suspicion that just comes in and you now look more suspicious because why would you tell us something that's not true, right? And it's perceived as being intentional, as being deceptive. Yes. But, yeah. that, but it's just a mistake, 
Right. And it might be a mistake on the person they're following up on. That's also true. (laughs) (laughs) The moment there's a contradiction, right, everything goes out the window, right? All credibility goes out the window because we don't know who to trust. And someone is not telling the truth is how an investigator would look at that. (laughs) Yeah. And it could be that one made a mistake and they actually did see each other at the park, right? Right. Yeah. Oh man, so, so and I like that you you brought up uh, that you you're not going to be encoding things necessarily that were kind of mundane or uh, you know irrelevant in, in in most respects, right? Yeah. So you know, making chicken and broccoli one night, or, you know, like the, those things you don't remember those from last Tuesday. Um, but and that's a part of how we you know how memory works is that you know you can encode so that you can then recover that memory whenever you need it. But it's not if it's not important and it's just kind of a habitual thing, you're not going to encode that and you're not going to be able to retrieve it later, right? No. Um, so you got to rely on those more, I guess, more hard evidence of like, oh, I have to, I, if I were to try and think about what I was doing last Tuesday, I'd have to look at my calendar first off to see what the hell the day was, see yeah. what was in my calendar and then kind of, re- <laughs> like you said, reconstruct it. I, I don't know how people can do that effectively. Um, and so I'm curious, like, what are those obstacles to being able to retrieve effectively retrieve an alibi uh, and retrieve memories about your day. So that, I mean, you kind of just, um, you know, in, introduced one of the things that, you know, my dissertation was um, focusing on is, you know, you said you're going to look at your phone and just have to figure out what it is you were doing and look at your calendar and things like that. Um, what was really interesting to me getting into the work on alibis was realizing that in a lot of studies, lab studies that have been done, a lot of participants did not ask for time to look at anything or to, you know, think, hey, give me a moment. I'm just going to check a couple of things and then I'll come back and give you a story that I know is more likely to be true. So mm-hmm. there's just this willingness when with innocent suspects to give a story, right? Even when the, they haven't checked everything. And I think a lot of that has to do with this, the quality of innocence, right? The fact that you are innocent, you have nothing to hide. So I shouldn't have to work so hard to prove that is how an innocent person would be thinking, right? So it's really easy. I know I didn't do it. So I can just say something right now. It doesn't really matter. You can move on and, you know, go investigate who needs to be arrested. It's not me because I didn't do it. The problem is when you then make those mistakes, right? Um, Now you're in a situation where your story has changed and all that stuff. But another obstacle, so the first obstacle I'd say is just a willingness to give a story right off the bat. The second thing is we tend to sort of, I think we call it schema-based responding, where people don't actually remember actual instances. They have these, you know, scripts of what they usually do with their week, you know, how their weeks are scheduled, and people just report based on that, right? So if I usually, you know, go to work from this time to that time, that's what my alibi is going to be because that's what I usually do. And that's great to the extent that that's exactly what you were doing on the day in question. But if there's been, you know, any deviations from that plan and then it turns up during, you know, the investigation or them following up on your story, then there's a problem, right? And so schema-based responding is really common and it's really, really hard to overcome because you just don't have that motivation to say, well, I probably didn't even remember it, right? I don't have the memory. It was so long ago. So I'm just going to go with what I'm usually doing. And then that's what people give. So I think that's that's another um, big obstacle there to to getting it right. So so does saying I don't know does that hurt you or does that help you? Whenever you're like you know when someone asks that, I'm trying to I'm curious as to whether or not 
it helps you. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say yes. If you, if you don't know, I would say don't say anything, right? Rather than say something and then come back and go, wait, I actually thought about it a little more and I realized this is a better story to tell you. So, mm. you know, the thing is people don't say I don't know, right? A lot of the times people just don't say that. And, you know, because I think what's interesting is what's overwhelming in the mind of an innocent person is, but I know I'm innocent, right? So it, it doesn't really matter for me not to give you, a, you know, a story or not to say, you know, I don't know because I could just tell you anything and it doesn't really matter because I didn't do it. So um, yeah, people don't say, I don't know. I think it's okay to say, I don't know. I think it's okay to say, um, hold on a minute. You know, I, I can come down to the station or whatever, and then I can give you a full statement in X amount of time, right? Let me go through and look things up. And that's exactly what I was, um, studying because, you know, what's interesting to me about alibis is there isn't a standardized procedure as to how, you know, we collect this evidence, right? So what what does an investigator do when they have to collect an alibi or question a suspect, right? Or follow up on leads? How do you ask those questions? Do you demand that someone give you a response in the moment? Do you give them time, right? Do you say, hey, you know, just take a minute, uh, go through your phone, you know, go through all the stuff and give me quality information that I can follow up on to prove whether your story is accurate or not, right? Or do you just want to catch them, you know, really quickly and then get them flustered, have them say something and then run with that? And so it's not clear what people do. You know, you've got all kinds of, you know, different forms of that. And so what my research is um, testing is just trying to get quality sort of methods and interviewing techniques to collect the best possible evidence. And the interesting thing about that is what you want to do is you want to have methods that are protective of innocent people, but not, you know, not something that's going to allow guilty people to go free. Yeah, right? you so have to strike that balance. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's exactly my thought, right? Because all of these things that you're saying, you know, <laughs> it, giving more time to be able to give yourself a, the, a, an accurate alibi also gives someone that's guilty a little more time to think about what <laughs> what they What's can say the for their alibi too right so it's a, it's a fine it's a balancing act right there right 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 and that's that's kind of something that my research like i said was looking at and what we found was that um for instance when you ask you know an innocent or you know truthful alibi provider to take the time to look at their phone and you know come up with their story and then you do the same thing with the deceptive alibi provider what you find is innocent people don't take that much time right they don't spend a lot of time checking their story and again i think this goes back to this idea of you know you're innocent you're not going to put that much effort into proving that you know i just know i was doing something yes it was something like this you know something in this ballpark but i'm not trying so hard to convince you that i'm not guilty because i know Mm -hmm. i'm innocent but a deceptive person, a guilty person, will go, will work really hard, spend a lot of time trying to craft the best version of the story, you know, and they're basically going through this iterative process of trying to figure out, well, I could say this, but I think it's more compelling if I say this, right? So they definitely take a lot more time um, to deliver that because the goal is to deceive, you know, whatever the investigator is or whoever's following right. up on that. And I could see a lot of investigators, uh, you, you saying that there's no real metric or, you know, gold standard of doing this. And that, that, yeah. that work that you're doing is really important for that. It, it, I could see why investigators would, would tend towards 
expecting an answer quickly because someone that is guilty would have a harder time coming up with a good story. But an innocent person would have just as hard of a time telling you what they did three weeks ago. So I mean, yeah. I, I see the I see why they would probably tend towards that. But I also see demonstrable issues with that <laughs> when it comes to the you know, of it. But the interesting thing is, when you think about it, if someone is guilty, they already have a story ready to go, right? Because ideally, if they're a smart criminal, they've thought about this moment coming, right? They've thought mm -hmm. about the moment when someone was going to ask them, where were you and what were you doing? So just giving this person time isn't really that different, right? Because they've had time right. to think about your story um, mm -hmm. before that as well. So they're not coming up with the story. They don't just suddenly realize I'm guilty of a crime and I have to come up with a story in this moment, right? So they've had the time to do that. But an innocent person just found out that there was a crime to begin with, right? So everything is news to them. Right. So that time should be helpful. Right. And I don't think it's, you know, necessarily bad for investigators to want to give them time, because at the same time, if you give someone enough time to go through their information, go through their calendar and give you things you can follow up on, it makes your work easier. Right. So you can eliminate them from the you know, investigation super quickly because you just look through everything and you get quality information early. And then now you can focus on other people who are not giving you good information or, you know, whose alibis are not necessarily verified. Right. Yeah. And I mean, it makes sense that you know, the goal of these investigators or police officers is not to pin down someone that's innocent and make sure that, that you know, they're right. the ones that are getting like, it's not often, I imagine it wouldn't be often that, you know, they're really trying to just find anybody <laughs> to fill their shoes, right? They usually, <laughs> no. you hope you cross your fingers that most cases, you know, they want to find the right person. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And yeah, I definitely don't want the message here to be that you know, <laughs> investigators are trying to look for anyone to pin a story on. But and that is yeah. obviously not the goal of this research either. Right. So we're for looking sure. for ways to make the work easier, A, and B, um, to protect people from falling into, um, you know, dangerous situations like wrongful accusations and convictions. Yeah. So, so with that work, Kareva, I get... Tomorrow, someone comes knocking on my door asking me what I did three weeks ago on Tuesday. What is your informed Dr. Kareva <laughs> Matuku suggestion? What should I be doing to effectively give the appropriate alibis? And how should I respond, in your opinion, off of what In you my opinion. Me? Okay, I'll base this off of um, some re other research that we did, I think, in 2019, where we looked at ways to help you remember where you were. So, you know, one of the ways is look at your materials, look at your phone, take some time to think about it. So you can ask for a couple of minutes to just go through, you know, all your calendars and your devices and things like that to figure that out. A lot of devices have a lot of information just stored there waiting for you and email and all that stuff. But um, in terms of proving where you were and supporting that alibi, it's really helpful to think about what you did chronologically, right? So when we think about when we think about how we you know go basically sort of live our lives and we're encoding different things, there's sort of an order code, right? That's kind of encoded along with whatever events that you're going through, such that when you remember one thing out of a sequence, it sort of triggers the memory for the next thing. So instead of thinking about you know they told you where were you that Tuesday from two to five p.m. Start in the morning, right? So go to a Tuesday and then go, I woke up. What did I do, right? I went, 
you know, I got some coffee and then I went to the gym and, you know, go through all those sequence of events because the more you kind of go chronologically, you can unlock or remember, well, unlock is not the best term, but basically remember, <laughs> you know, other things and other little elements that wouldn't come naturally to you. So chronological recall has been shown to definitely be more beneficial when it comes to helping you remember. Um, another thing you can do when also thinking about how to support your story is to take on someone else's perspective. A lot of things, times when people try to think about, wait, I can prove to you that you know I didn't commit this crime and this is where I really was at that time, they think about what's available to them. They don't think about any kind of evidence that could be accessible to someone else. Right. And so, for instance, you know, if you were hanging out with a friend, they might have taken pictures with you. Right. In a certain place, they might have posted it on the Instagram story. It might be up on, you know, or they might have tweeted something, you know, things like that, that you don't personally have, but someone else does. So by projecting right. almost or changing your perspective to think about someone else and what evidence they could have to prove that you were somewhere else. Right. And then you could also extend this to even thinking like a detective. What would a detective find? Right. You don't have access to CCTV footage from the random convenience store, you know, in your neighborhood. But if you know you went there, you don't have access to it, but you know that a detective could. So you could also just shift your perspective to different kinds of people who could be important in the story, right, in your story, and then try to think about evidence from their perspective. And that's also going to be helpful in helping you remember. Great. Yeah, but I really I'm hope that never happens to you. Oh my God. I mean, I'm hoping to, not tomorrow, but I mean, anytime in the future, I hope I don't have to. I mean, but this is information that is great for those that, because it will catch people by surprise, right? You know, there are, yeah. there are a lot of people that will get caught off guard by this. And it's, and it's a really important message to not do what you would, your first inclination would be, which I know it would be just to give up a story that's probably not accurate, which you don't right. want to do. It's exactly what we were talking about not wanting to do. But that's our human nature is just like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm safe. So, you know, I'm, I never I didn't do it. So I can just say whatever and, and things will work out. You know, the world right. is just and that's not always the case. Right. Which is not how the world works. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so, I mean, that's really good information for me to have. Yeah, hopefully we don't have to use it, but we do have the power now to use it if we have to. Yeah. Um, so, Kareva, how much emphasis is being put on alibis versus, like you said, physical evidence and other things? Because, you know, in the, in the example you used at the beginning of the episode, um, Sometimes they just ignore physical evidence and, and, and prioritize other things, right? So, so right. what is how much does it play a role in convictions? So, the interesting thing is, um, a lot of the work that I've been doing is very applicable during the early stages of an investigation, right? So, this is when you know a crime has been committed, and you're looking for suspects, you're looking for people who could be implicated in this um, the crime. And so it's during these early stages where, you know, an alibi really comes in handy or is really influential because it basically determines, should we look into you a little more or should we move on and go find someone else? Now, if you go beyond that point where you're now, you've been charged with something, right? And for whatever reason, because they, for instance, believe the eyewitness who said they saw you, right? Your alibi ceases to really matter right and but what's interesting is you know there's so many factors and so many stages in the in the whole sequence um you know in the criminal justice system that there's so many things that add to each other so let's say you know your alibi isn't believed and they believe you're a suspect they put you in a lineup 
they put you in a lineup and someone who wasn't very clear that they saw you picks you out of that lineup, right? You've now been misidentified. And now what the important thing now is that you've been identified. So it seems to be that you have this alibi. The alibi doesn't matter anymore at this point, but now you've been picked. And so now you're, you've been picked, you know, you might be interrogated and now you're being interrogated and they might use different tactics to do that. And depending on what you say becomes, you know, um, something that implicates you and then basically ends up in you either taking a plea or eventually being found um, guilty. So it sort of snowballs into all these other things that could happen. Now, as long as, you know, you can uh, have your story be believed the first time, that's kind of where I believe my research is important is yeah. we want to help people get it right the first time. So you never even have to get to a point where they look into other things and try to put you uh, or subject you to other measures that could just you know, go in the, the opposite direction, right? And just implicate yeah. you in this crime. So you don't want that. So tell the best story the first time and hope that it's believed is kind of the angle we take with our research. The alibi kind of can lead you away from being a suspect in the first place. Right. Right. And and then you don't have to get caught up in that awful snowball in situation that you do. <laughs> it just makes me feel sick. Have You right. know, whenever you think of those situations where an innocent person has to prove their innocence after, you know, they haven't been believed. And with with the witness line. So I have I've, I do have a couple of questions. We won't go too much into it. Um, <laughs> okay. But, but I mean, with with a lineup, this is completely naive, me being naive to the judicial system. Who is in a lineup? Do they pick random people? Um, is it just like, is it, is there a bunch of suspects often in a lineup where they're not really sure or what, what does lineups, like how do, how do they select lineups? Yeah. So there's a couple of ways to sort of um, thinking about how you create a lineup. And sometimes it's a lineup because, you know, you have people in a line, right. In a room and then someone walks in and then they have to they look at everyone and then they pick someone. That's how it's been shown to us on TV. And that's how we usually think about a lineup. But I think for the most part, it's more, it's easier to just have pictures, right? So you have pictures and it's called a photo spread. So you basically just put people, you know, pictures of people there and then you have them um, pick someone. Now, ideally, the gold standard is that you only have one suspect in a lineup. So you can't have two people who you're thinking they could have done it and then you put both of them in this little, in the set of photos. You only have one lineup that's been created, you know, for that one suspect. And in terms of the other photos that you have there, these have to be photos of people you are sure are innocent of this crime, right? So you are 100% sure because either they are also currently, they were in prison at the time or they were incarcerated or in custody at the time that um, this crime took place or, you know, it's someone who actually works in the police station, right? So you draw from these pools where you know that these people didn't do it. But it's, what's important is how you come up with these people, right? And what they look like. So for instance, you can't have the suspect be so different from everyone else in that lineup because it almost just screams, pick me, right? Yeah. You know, and, and so they're just these leading kinds of sort of um, lineups where um, it could be just that someone is picking them because they look so different from everyone else, right? Everyone else has a beard, but this one person doesn't have a beard. So I think it's the one person who doesn't have a beard. So you're not being chosen because, you know, the witness believes this is the person who did it and this is the person I saw. They just believe, well, this is the most different person, so I'm going to go with them. Yeah. So there have to be an element of similarity, right, between um, they have to match the general uh, description 
that the witness gave. So witnesses will give a description to say the person was African-American. They were about five, nine. They um, had a slim build. So basically every one of those individual um, photos in the photo spread has to kind of match that description. So in the end, you're just not making plain pick and choose. You're actually picking the person who you know you saw and not just right. someone who fits a random description. Yeah. And with those, does is there like some sort of rating scale where they're like, I am 100% sure this is the person versus I'm 50%? Like, how do they do that? That's, that's an interesting question. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> so theoretically, hypothetically, well, theoretically, in the best case scenario, someone should only pick someone if they're certain, right, that yeah. this is the person I saw. Now, in practice, that's not always the case, right? And one of the important things that, you know, um, the criminal justice system uses to basically rate how reliable a witness is, one of those things is confidence. So how confident was the witness when they made that identification? So, you know, sometimes you could be asked, so how confident are you, you know, as a percentage? So you're like, oh, I'm 100% confident. That's perceived a certain way versus you're saying, oh, I'm not so sure, right? Because ideally, when you're shown a lineup, you have the option to say, this person's not there, and that's okay, right? And yeah. you should be told if you're a witness and you have to pick someone, you should be told that, you know, you have the option to say the person's not there. Because if you don't and you, you know, you make a witness believe they have to pick someone, then you have these problems where now they're just picking someone because they have to and, you know, they're feeling pressure because the investigation is riding on this ID, so I have to play along. And that's how you can have these problems. Yeah. So did I answer the question? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> the, uh, it, it should be 100% confident, right? Like that's, that's the it goal. It should be, right? but ideally yeah. it's not. And what's interesting is there's a lot of work showing that, you know, confidence is really malleable. Right. As you know, and by that, I mean, it can be inflated and basically change over time. So, for instance, you pick someone and you're like, I think it's that guy. Right. So that I think there and that hesitancy indicates you're not 100 percent confident. But if you're told by, you know, whatever detective that, hey, listen, that's the person we had for the crime. Right. And so basically you're consistent with our hunches. And mm -hmm. that's the person we thought. By the time that witness gets to, you know, the, the, the trial and they have to give their testimony, they'll yeah. be like, I was super confident. I was one, yeah. at the moment I saw them, I knew it was them. But then when you look back at what actually happened, that's not how they felt. So there's just this difficulty in, you know, just making those um, evaluations and basically monitoring your own uh, judgments. And then later on, reporting those same judgments at a later mm. time it's just not always so easy yeah it just sounds like a, you know it the way that the individuals that are you know the police officers or whoever's working with them to do the lineups yeah. can almost in a way give some sort of confirmation bias to an individual and you know prep them right. to, to think that they're more confident than they are whereas right. you know and sometimes it's not even intentional right yeah and that's the yeah. that's the interesting part is um you know yes they could be egregious examples of like people willingly, you know, forcing, well, not forcing, but like steering witnesses to pick someone. But sometimes it happens in a very subtle way, right? Where, you know, they show you the photos and then they're like, you know, maybe someone could say, it looks like number two, this photo number two here kind of looks like them. And then if the person says, oh, okay, um, you want to look at any of the other 
photos, right? Or just like, oh, okay. Or they pause a little too too long after they say that, then they're like, wait, maybe I should second, you know, go back and look at this because that's not the person they want me to pick. So it doesn't have to be intentional. And so what is the gold standard in eyewitness IDs is where the person administering the lineup is also unaware of how, of who the suspect is. So it's a right. double blind. blind to it. Yes, right. Yeah. So if they don't know, they can't give you those little cues or clues as to who to pick because they also don't know. Right. So like someone that's completely like unrelated to that uh, that case or whatever coming right. in and just administering it. I, I think of I think of all of these true crime shows that I've watched, Kareva, and, and, and you talking about this. I'm like, oh, why aren't they just recording all of these? Do they, do they record all of these things? Because it seems like if you're using it as evidence, you should definitely, from a psychological perspective, I'm thinking like all these times where you could be leading a witness or, you know, steering them into a direction. If it's all recorded and it's procedural, which I think is probably a lot of what your, you know, your goal mm-hmm. was as a researcher to make it more procedural, where it's like right. you, you follow these these scripts whenever you have someone coming in to do a lineup or to take alibis that you can have that recording whenever it comes, if it does ever come time to go into court with it, that you could say, okay, clearly there's no steering. They were very confident. So-and-so, right? right. Uh, is that a reality? Probably not. It, it actually is. I think there's, oh. um, there's a lot of, um, a lot of work um, that's kind of gone into uh, pushing for these recommendations as to how to do lineups. And one of the big recommendations is you have to record a lineup, that okay. everything has to be recorded, right? Um, and that is important because we then don't have to ask these questions about, well, so how confident were they when they made that decision, right? Um, and that's a, what a lot of uh, jurisdictions have already um, adopted. So that's already happening in a lot of places. Um, what's interesting is there's definitely ways, it's not exactly a perfect system because, you know, I could have already told you certain things before I hit record, right? That might make you believe, you know, that you should act a certain way or pick a certain person. But one of the bigger challenges as well is once you have the recording, it's also still hard to determine if that witness is accurate or not, right? Are they accurate or are they not? And some of the work that we were doing recently was trying to look at nonverbal behaviors and try to see if people who are accurate sort of act differently from people who are inaccurate based on how strong maybe their memory was and the, the, these subtle behaviors that they show when they're making an identification. And it's very early work. I'm not going to say, you know, we know exactly what people do, but we've definitely been looking at some of these, um, you know, things like, for instance, there could be, um, you know, this wavering sort of behavior where someone could like point at one picture, point at a different one, and then come back to one or just go through different um, faces. Because ideally, if you really know who you saw, that person should just jump out at you. And you should maybe make an automatic sort of very fast um, judgment. But people who tend to, you know, take more time and go back and forth between um, different faces tend to be not accurate, right? Right. But uh, there's no perfect way to know that um, after the fact. Yeah. 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 Nonverbal communication is such an interesting line of work. And it's, you know, it's a big part of this, this work and legal psychology, I'm sure it plays a big role. Um, You know, confidence, lying, all these things, people like to kind of predict whether or not you're lying, or you're telling the truth, or you're (laughs) honest, or you're accurate based on where your eyes are, or where you're looking, right? So all these things are kind of interesting. And obviously, you're trying to do 
as much work to make it just systematic in a way right. where it's you're not having to do these this guessing, which is you know a big part of it, um, and and a tough part. So I mean, this works really cool, Kareva. It's been really really informative for me. Again, hopefully we don't need to use this information going <laughs> forward, but it's really important to know. Yeah, it's important to know, and it's interesting because um, it kind of changes how you live your life, right? Because I find myself just thinking at random moments, well, if I had to talk about this moment right now, what could be evidence, right? So I find, I find myself noticing people's names, right? When they tell me their name, I'm like, oh, I know who you are. You know, or I read a waiter's um, name tag so that I, I know who to say was there <laughs> if I ha- ever have to. Now, is that probably <laughs> indicative of some other anxiety? Maybe, <laughs> but <laughs> it's something that I do now, right? I just think yeah. about that. I mean, when you do so much work, when you get a PhD in this stuff, Trevor, you kind of have to kind of switch the way you think, right? <laughs> you think I mean, I'm glad, you, I'm glad you're doing all the thinking for me. Um, <laughs> last question about this, because I mean, it's, it's an interesting topic that you, I yeah. mean, a note that you brought up with, with the um, interrogation or the lineups. Uh, what do you call it when you put the, give the picture, sorry? What was a that? photo spread. Photo spread. So that, is that the more, that's the more common thing to do now is a photo spread? Well, you'd only do a photo spread if you have witnesses who gave you a description and, you know, you you basically maybe don't just don't throw someone into a photo right. spread, right? You need to have witnesses who say they, they could make an ID. They, you know, do you believe you could pick the person if you saw them? And if they say yes, then then you could put a suspect there. But ideally, you're also not throwing someone who is just a random person into a lineup. They have to also be... Yeah some evidence behind why you're putting them there in the first place, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Not just because you pick them up off the street and that's just what you want to do, right? Yeah. You, you have to have this reason. So yes, you know, they're very important because an eyewitness's testimony is really, really um, basically like pivotal to a trial because you almost, it's really, really hard to overcome a statement that's been given by a credible witness, right? If yeah. someone says, I saw you, it was you. Yeah. Right. And that person is sitting right there. It's so hard for a jury to reconcile everything, be it your alibi and everything, because this person is, was just minding their business and they saw you. That's what they said. You're saying it's not you, but you have a reason to say that. You don't want to go to prison. But this person loses nothing because they yeah. saw you. You know, yeah. so that's kind of what's going on in the mind of the jury and what makes it really tricky. So, mm. yeah. You, you might get more information from someone physically standing in front of you i think of us you you know talking through um voice call right now you know right. i would pick up a lot more stuff from you and if i were to see you say you know say you committed a crime and then i saw you in person when that crime committed i would probably be better at pr- finding you if you were physically in front of me so i could see all of your features versus a picture is that is that something that's considered in that as well i i think so i'm not i'm not going to put a like be very definitive about that. I think there yeah. has been some research definitely looking into whether it's different when you watch, um, when you view a photo spread versus a live lineup where you actually see mm-hmm. the person. I'm not sure what the outcome there is, but it's so hard to do that in person, right? Definitely yeah. there's things like gate identification, right? So you, if someone walked with a lip, right? That's only something you would see if you saw them, you know, and in person and saw them live. And that's not something a picture can give you. So sometimes, you know, investigators will vary these methods based on those descriptions, right? So if someone, there was something about the way they moved, right? So then maybe, you know, a photo spread is not necessarily going to 
um, give you that information or give the witness an opportunity to ID that. So yeah. there might be some yeah. variation there. That makes a lot of sense. I I I picture, and I my girlfriend calls me all this all the time. I'm always looking at people's gate for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> so if there was ever someone that had an odd gate that had committed a crime, I would be a really good eyewitness. You'd be, you'd be the I'm first always, person to say. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say I can't get the photos. The photo spread will not work. We need to have a lineup. I need to. See I really walking. need to not see their faces. I just need them to walk, <laughs> and I'll know who it is. <laughs> I don't need the face. Just turn around so I can see them walk away. It'll be perfect. <laughs> the That's easiest funny. lineup ever. Um, I, I appreciate talking to you, Kreva. I'm glad you came on. I'm glad we connected. This was this was really fun. Thank you so much. Yeah, this was really fun. Yeah, and I hope um, everyone else thought this was interesting work. Oh, I'm sure they will. Absolutely. And so, so Kreva, if anybody wanted to reach out to you about this work, or if there's anything that you want to kind of plug, the 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 microphone is yours. <laughs> oh, you can find me on Twitter at Kreva Matuku. That's the only plug that matters. <laughs> <laughs> brilliant and and of course Kareva we're going to include that all as well in our show notes yeah. whenever this comes out um, so I mean again thanks again this was really fun and I'm, I'm glad you came on thank you it was a pleasure and with that this episode is an open and closed case if you've been listening to us for a while or you just tuned in for this episode please do go to Apple Podcast and give us a like a review and share our podcast to friends and family we really would like it to get out to more people um, a little update for everyone that's curious about what I've been doing and what Kyle's been doing as well because he's been gone for a little while. He's still looking after his little boy Logan, uh, so he's quite happy to be doing that. And we're both pushing on with our dissertations right now, getting getting into our candidacy. And if you're curious about the work that we're specializing in for our PhDs, I'm happy to do an episode on my work that focuses on how couples support each other in times of stress and when it can be good and bad. If you're curious about that or want me to cover any other topics, please do reach out to us at BrainBuzzPod on Twitter and on Instagram. We will definitely take any recommendations you have and we'll find the perfect guests for those episodes. Thanks again for listening and have a wonderful day. Cheers.